0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 25th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to present part five of our commentary on the Epistles of John. It is titled, The Authors of Sin. Before I start, let me say that we've had bad thunderstorms these last three hours. I pray my electricity doesn't go out, just like last Friday, strangely. And again, next week, next Friday, I would like to do another open forum program. So I'm announcing that tonight, just in case anyone wants to participate. But the links are only going to be posted in the Christoginian chat. Perhaps a chat members may share them, and that doesn't bother me at all. But I'm not going to post the links on my front page to keep down the number of prospective trolls. So this is only Epistles of John, Part Five: The Authors of Sin. In our last presentation in this commentary, in this commentary, titled "The Children of Yahweh." We presented some of the biblical evidence that those who were declared to be the children of God in the Old Testament are the exclusive beneficiaries of the Old Testament promises of forgiveness, reconciliation, mercy, salvation, and redemption for Israel, which promises are fulfilled in Christ. That Christ Himself, and his apostles had declared that he had come to fulfill those same promises to those same people. And therefore, also, that it is those very same people who are the exclusive, who are exclusively considered to be the children of God in the New Testament, just as they had been in the Old As Paul of Tarsus had attested in Romans chapter 11, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, meaning that the promises of God did not change. And he also said in Galatians chapter 3, that no man may disannul or add to the promises of God. The new covenant, having been made exclusively with the ancient children of Israel, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, just as Paul also cited the words of Jeremiah in Hebrews chapter 8. Under no circumstances may any other man from outside of the children of Israel ever legitimately claim to be a party to that covenant. You are only deceiving yourself. You're kidding yourself. You're a joker if you think that you can add to the promises of God. Yet from as early as the 2nd century in Samaria, which is evident in the writings of Justin Martyr and later so-called Church Fathers, some strange interpretation of Christianity was developed whereby it was admitted that the promises of God were for Israel, but that somehow the identity of Israel was changed. This we call replacement theology. It is a lie, and it has always been a lie. As Paul of Tarsus had also attested near the very end of his ministry, His labors were for the twelve tribes of Israel. He strove for the hope of the twelve tribes of Israel, not for some new replacement Israel, not for some church that could pretend to be Israel, but for the twelve tribes of Israel, which is recorded in Acts chapter 26. A lie which has been perpetuated for over 1,800 years does not make it true. The promises of God were made to Abraham's seed through Jacob. And Paul himself explained in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham had already become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. Then he repeated what was spoken. And he said, "So shall thy seed be other nations did not become Abraham's seed. that's not what which, what that is not that which was spoken. And Abraham himself believed that God was true when he promised that his seed would become many nations, which it did. this identification of the seed has been a shell game which the between the church and the Jews which has been played now for over 1800 years and neither of them are the seed the word of God promised that Abraham's actual physical seed would become many nations And those nations can be identified in scripture as the white Christian nations of history, which we should accept if indeed we believe the word of God. Here, according to the first epistle of John, it also becomes evident who those nations are and who the Jews are, that they have never been the children of Israel in any period, that of the Old Testament or that of the New. But we must understand that John had learned these things, which he is teaching, from the gospel of Christ, and not from what has been recorded in his only in his own account, but he also observed many of the same events and heard the same words of Christ, which are recorded in the other gospel accounts, those of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John wrote of the enemies of Christ here, in rather simple language, in chapter 2 of his epistle, that they came out from us, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us, but so that they would be made manifest that they are not all from of us. Ostensibly, John was not learned in history, and neither were the other apostles, with the exception of Paul and perhaps Luke, both of whom came to Christ after the resurrection. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 4, where the Pharisees attempted to prevent the apostles from spreading the gospel. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is Acts 413 and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. So, these men being unlearned men, we will not get a history lesson in the gospel, and therefore. From the gospel alone, we cannot learn the details of how they came out from us, but they were not from of us. Yet the simplicity which is in Christ, of which Paul had written later, certainly informs Christians how to distinguish the wheat from the tares, and that we shall see John himself explain here in chapter 3 of this first epistle of John. We just won't see it this evening. I thought we would when I wrote this, but we won't quite get there. It is evident in their writings that early Samaritan and Alexandrian Christians had conceded and resigned themselves to the claims of the Jews to be Israel. And for that, they departed from the Christianity of Christ and the apostles which we would call covenant theology, and instead they had developed a novel so-called replacement theology. Many early Christians had also conceded to the claims of the Jews that they worshipped the God of the Old Testament, so they developed the so-called trinity a concept which allows Jews and others room to claim to worship God apart from Christ. The horrifying truth is that in this manner, true Christianity has never been taught. Since when the Roman Catholic Church was formed, it adopted these two heresies right from the beginning and thereby acknowledged all the claims of the Jews, the same Jews of which John had said, they came out from us, but they were not from of us. And he also asked later in that same chapter, First John chapter 2, Who is a liar if not he denying that Yahshua is the Christ? Every Jew all throughout history has been a liar. For that very reason. But fortunately for us, the scriptures themselves have been preserved, and we also have some advantages which the apostles of Christ did not have, with the exception of Paul of Tarsus, who was learned in history. While the apostles were simple fishermen and they were not learned in literature, we have the advantage of the testimony of Strabo of Cappadocia, book 16 of his geography, that the Edomians were living among the Judeans and shared the same laws and customs. So there we see a corroboration of the later histories of Josephus. Then we had the histories of Josephus, which were not written until after the time of Paul. Paul was long dead when Josephus published wars, or antiquities, or against Appian, Although Paul may have had access to the same original sources used by, Joseph, by Josephus. Flavius Josephus had attested to the Edomite presence in Judea, he had explained how all the Edomites had become Jews and how the Edomites came to dominate politics and religion in Judea from before the time of Christ. Paul wrote of this same thing where in Romans chapter 9, he said that they are not all Israel which are of Israel while praying only for his kinsmen according to the flesh. So Paul was a racist. And he went on to explain those statements with a comparison of Jacob and Esau, while recounting the promises made to Jacob and not to Esau. So we can see the historical truth which John had put in simple language here that the enemies of Christ came out from us but they were not from of us as the King James Version words it, I believe. Maybe that's the Christogony New Testament. Honestly, I forgot. In the Gospel of Christ, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 13, the apostle attested <clears throat> that all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And this is the King James Version. And without a parable spoke he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. So, if there were things kept secret from the foundation of the world, we must understand that Christ had come to reveal things that are cryptic, obscure, or perhaps not even explained or mentioned in the accounts of Moses in Genesis. Then, immediately after Matthew's attestation, and after Christ had told the multitude the parable of the wheat and the tares, we read in part from Matthew chapter 13 from verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away, and he went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Right there we have to understand that he is about to explain the parable. He is not explaining the parable with another parable. Otherwise, he would not be explaining the parable. He is explaining the parable, and we should accept the fact that his explanation of the parable was so that his disciples would understand it and therefore that his language is plain, that the words he used he would expect his disciples to understand by their plain definitions. This is the explanation of the parable. It is not another parable. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. All things that were made in Genesis were made through him. But the tares, who are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account, the tares are the children of the wicked one. and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then, in John's own gospel account, in John chapter 8, We read in part where Joshua Christ is arguing with his adversaries, ostensibly for the sake of revealing their true nature to his own people, which is something that Paul of Tarsus had explained later, especially, for instance, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he says, I know you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. If these Judeans were Edomites, they could claim to be Abraham's seed. But as Paul of Tarsus also explained in Romans chapter 9, and in a different way in Galatians chapter 3, being Edomites rather than Israelites, they were Abraham's seed, but they were not the children of the promise. Then, ostensibly, Because Esau had committed fornication, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, and had taken his wives of the Hittites, Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, and further mingled with the Horites throughout subsequent generations, Genesis chapter 36, verse 20, for example, The Edomites were not true children, either of Abraham or of God. Perhaps I should have said, neither of Abraham nor of God. Either way, it works. For that reason, Christ continues in John chapter 8 and says, I speak that which I have seen with my father. And you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. A bastard may claim a man as an ancestor, but that does not mean that the bastard is a true child. So John continued, where Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we be not be of fornication. We have one father, even God. The Jews understood what Christ meant. So they denied having been born of fornication. But Christ himself denied them their denial. Where it continues, and we read, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you cannot hear my word. As Christ had said to some of them, Or, as Christ had said to them some months later in John chapter 10, but you believe me not because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. So, for 1800 years, Christians have had a choice whether to believe Jesus or Jews. And for 1800 years, Christians have chose to believe the Jews. How amazing is that? Christ said they were not his sheep, and that's why they did not believe him. And Christians will say, oh, the Jews are God's chosen people. How amazing is that that for 1,800 years, Christians have voluntarily chosen to believe Jews instead of Jesus. Yet they claim to be Christians. That is disgraceful. Then Christ reveals the true origin of his adversaries, where John continues, and he said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And I don't know why I didn't recognize this many years ago. I guess it's rather easy to be programmed by things that we always read, to be trained to only read things one way. And we can all do it mainstream denominational Christians and their pastors, they always do it. They've been programmed to read everything one way, and they can't overcome that programming. You could show it to them in Greek or in English, in black and white. You could show them the lexicons, the definitions, in their own lexicons, which they use... Liddell and Scott, Brown, Driver, Briggs, Strong's Concordance, and they still won't believe it because they've been programmed to read it a certain way. And I guess if I could fall victim to it, well, I can't imagine that anybody else could resist it <laughs> because I had the advantage of having studied Christian identity long before I translated John, yet I still fell victim to it. It's so easy to fall victim to reading something one way and simply not imagining that it should be rethought. It's a human flaw that we can't think of every angle every time we read something. And if we're trained to read it one way, we don't. That last clause in John 8, 44. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. As I have recently explained, and this is something I have only recently realized, that last clause, which refers to Cain, only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. Most certainly may, and perhaps even should be read, When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and his father. And that does absolutely no offense and is actually, because Cain is the subject, it's actually a more natural reading of the Greek. Although the other one, the other reading is not incorrect and the father of it. Finally, for our purposes here, Christ affirms that his adversaries could not receive the truth because they were not of God, where he said in verses 45 through 47, and because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. You, therefore, hear them not. Because you are not of God. So basically, Christ was affirming that they were children of fornication, which they denied. It's very possible that they denied it sincerely because they didn't truly understand what fornication was according to the law. Fornication in this instance to be not of God. You would have to be race-mixed, and there's only one choice. You would have to be race-mixed with that other tree in the garden, with the Nephilim, the Rephaim, and the branches of that tree, the fallen angels, as we shall see here. The tares of the world are people who were planted by the devil, And that is further revealed in the account of the fallen angels who were led by that old serpent who is called the devil and Satan in Revelation chapter 12. Where the adversary is described as that old serpent, we see a direct reference to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. And by that we may understand what Christ had meant in the parable of the wheat and the tares, where he described the field as the world and the tares as the children of the wicked one. The enemy having sowed them being the devil. Christ used past tense verbs throughout that parable of the wheat and the tares. So he is referring to two types of people, people with two different origins, as they had already existed. Not as they would come into existence, but as they had already existed, because he used past tense verbs. Not only was Cain of the seed of the serpent, rather than of Adam, but as it says in Genesis chapter 6, there were giants in the earth in those days, and there is no Genesis record that God created them. But that word for giants is Nephilim, which means fallen ones. And they were already in the earth in those days, before the flood of Noah, seeking to corrupt the creation of God, as the serpent had also sought to do with the seduction of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. So their presence is not accounted for until Revelation chapter 12, as Christ had come to reveal things kept secret, since the foundation of the world. In many other ways, in other contexts and commentaries, we have elaborated on these things, and it is not neat to attempt to prove them all here. All we should need to do as Christians is to accept the plain meanings of the words as they were spoken by Christ and his apostles. As the apostles were not Gnostics, they were not Neoplatonic philosophers. They were unlearned, everyday, average men. And when they used terms such as seed, father, Children and son, they meant them in their plain literal meanings, void of any peculiar esoteric definitions, which were later imagined by the so called church fathers who had conceded truth to the Jews. The portion of Matthew. The portion of Matthew chapter 13, which we have cited, where Christ said that the tears are the children of the wicked one, the enemy that sowed them is the devil, it is not a parable, rather it is his explanation of the parable for his disciples, so that they would know exactly what he meant by the parable. Therefore, the plain and literal meanings of the words must be accepted since it is an explanation of the allegory which he had given previously, earlier in that same chapter. Now, in the opening verses of John chapter 3, The apostle had already begun to compare the children of God to those who do not do righteousness. And now he reveals the origin of the latter. He who is creating error is from of the false accuser. Since the false accuser errs from the beginning, and we're going to cut it off right there, halfway through, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. This evening we are only going to discuss this single verse. I didn't plan it that way. I had planned to do the whole second half of the chapter. It just wasn't possible for me to get to verse 9 this evening. Throughout my New Testament translation, I chose to render the Greek word diabolos, literally, but as a proper noun so it is capitalized, as false accuser, since it is a title for that old serpent as it is explained in in Revelation chapter 12. Ostensibly, being a title for that old serpent, It would also be applied to all of the other fallen angels related to him, and also to their collective descendants, as they did indeed have descendants, who are often named in scriptures. And it is used in that context in scripture, in other scriptures, The fact that the devil has children must be addressed. The fact that these fallen angels were able to perpetuate themselves by having children is also fully evident in the scripture. For example, in Numbers chapter 13, we read, and there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. So we see that the giants had sons, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. That word for giants in Numbers chapter thirteen thirty-three is Nephilim fallen ones, just as where it said in Genesis chapter 6 that there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, meaning that after they committed fornication with the daughters of Adam, for which Yahweh God caused the flood to come upon the earth to destroy most of the Adamic race, the exception being Noah and his family that after they committed fornication with the daughters of Adam, they continued to multiply. They continued to have children. Numbers 13.33, the sons of Anak, which come of the Nephilim. So here, this phrase, false accuser, may have been translated as devil, but unfortunately, where the word devil appears in the King James Version. It was used to translate both diabolus and another word, dahimon, or its diminutive form, and the diminutive form actually appears more often, dahimonion. Dahimon and dahimonion. Demon is the meaning. This is transliterated as demon. They are wicked spirits and not living people. Perhaps they used to be living people, but they are wicked spirits. They are not living people. Another word which means accuser, a substantive form of the verb categorio, so it's a verb being employed as a noun, was apparently used to describe the fallen angels collectively in Revelation chapter 12, where we read, The accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So we see a description of their nature, whereby they are portrayed as being forever opposed to the children of Israel. Just as Paul had said of the Jews, the Jews whom he also called Satan, that they are contrary to all men in his epistles to the Thessalonians. Where John describes he who is creating error, the King James Version has only he that committeth sin. But even the North American Standard Version recognizes that the meaning must be stronger than that. So it has the one who practices sin. In our last presentation, discussing verse 4 of this chapter, when we encountered John's statement that each who is practicing wrongdoing or sin also practices lawlessness, we noted that rather than simply using the verb which describes the act of sinning, John used a different verb, poieo, Along with the noun which means sin, or as we have it here, wrongdoing, in order to dis in order to distinguish someone who practices or even creates or authors sin, we have the same predicament here. John didn't simply use the verb for sin. He used this phrase, poieo, the verb, with the noun for sin, hamartia, to describe someone who authors or creates or perhaps practices sin. The verb poieo, as we had cited its definition, from the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, which is the largest, most thorough, most voluminous lexicon that you could probably get for the ancient Greek language. The verb poieo was used in two general sense, Senses. First, to make, produce, or create, to bring into existence or invent, or to bring about or cause, and in English, we could use the term author to describe that, to be the author of some work or some act, and then, in a secondary sense, it was used to describe to do or to practice, or to be doing, or to act, or to operate. As we have also explained here, here John cannot possibly be referring to mere sinners, where he says, as it is in the King James Version, he that committeth sin is of the devil. That is because, and we discussed this when we had Encountered these earlier passages in this epistle. That is because in John chapter 1, the apostle had attested that if we should say that we have no guilt or sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all have sin. As Paul of Tarsus said, all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all have sin. That doesn't make all men of the devil, otherwise nobody would be of God. Nobody would be born of God, and we'd have to wonder why Jesus ever said such a thing as describing men who were born of God. If every one of us was born of the devil because we have all sinned, Now, where Christ said, unless a man was born of God, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, then only he would ever be in the kingdom of heaven, because all other men have sinned. And that's ridiculous. That's not what John is saying here. We would all be of the devil if the interpretation offered by the King James Version is correct here. And furthermore, John would also be contradicting himself where he said in chapter 2 of this epistle that, and if one should do wrong or sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yahshua Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation on behalf of our sins. As we have also said in the past, the children of Israel had sinned throughout the history of the Old Testament. They sinned as soon as Moses left them alone at Sinai, by compelling Aaron to make the golden calf. They continued to sin for another 700 years, until Yahweh began to divorce them and send them off into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. They sinned throughout the period of their captivity, and they continued to sin. But in all of the scriptures, in spite of their sin, they remained the children of God. And they were never called children of the devil. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in the Song of Moses, we read where he recollected some of the sins which the children of Israel committed in the desert. And he said, They sacrificed unto devils. So they were followers of the devil. They were making sacrifices unto devils. But even that did not make them the children of the devil. That entire paradigm is an invention of the Roman Catholic Church so that they could deny that Jews are actual physical children of the devil. Moses said, They sacrificed unto devils and not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that newly came up, whom your fathers feared not, because they never heard of them, of the rock that begot thee, the rock that begot thee. God begot them, even though they were followers of the devil. Moses said, God, the rock, which is Christ, had begot them. This one passage blows the false church doctrines away. Of the rock that begot thee, thou art unmindful and has forgotten the God that formed thee. I'm sorry, I'm typing, adding to my notes, and ad-libbing as I proceed, all at the same time. I'm trying to do it at the same time. I have limitations. (laughs) Of the rock that begot thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when Yahweh saw it, he abhorred them, because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. So, even having sacrificed to the devils, they would nevertheless consider to be the sons and daughters of God, having been begotten by God, by Yahweh their God. Furthermore, where John wrote here that the devil sins from the beginning, he employed a present active form of the verb and not a past tense form. He didn't say the devil sinned in the beginning. He says the devil sins, meaning the devil is still sinning, the devil sins from the beginning. So the false accuser, or devil, is sinning, even as John was writing this epistle. But let us examine how the devil sinned from the beginning, and how the devil was the author of sin. First, There is the account, I'm sorry, my voice is really raspy this evening, I guess. Some people might mistake that for whiny. They're just fools. First, there is the account in Genesis chapter 3, where we see that the serpent had seduced Eve into eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. While it is not our purpose to make a foolproof here, that the act being described was a sexual relation. Language in that chapter certainly does establish the truth of that interpretation. First, words meaning eat and touch are used as euphemisms for sexual contact in later scriptures, such as in Proverbs chapter 9 where Solomon describes a wanton woman who is soliciting sex, and he says, for she sits at the door of her house, on a seat in the high places of the city, to call passengers, passers would be a more colloquial term today, a more modern term, to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither, or turn in there at the door of that house where this whore is sitting on the steps trying to beckon to men who are passing by. And as for him that wanteth understanding, she says to him, Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So actually, eaten was added to that passage. But bread is the euphemism taking its place, because to eat in secret is to have sexual relations in secret. Likewise, he wrote of an adulterous woman in Proverbs chapter 30. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. And this time the verb is in the text. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. There Solomon was not referring to actual food. He was referring to an adulterous woman. In Proverbs chapter 6, we see the word for touch was used as a euphemism for sexual intercourse, where we read, So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife, whosoever touches her shall not be innocent. Again, Paul used the same euphemism in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he wrote, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. But that is not all. That is not all there is. To the proof, that Genesis 3 is a parable about sex relations, sexual relations. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, there are allegories used to describe sexual relations and sexual awakening, which also appear in Genesis chapter 3 in a similar context. Therefore, the Epic of Gilgamesh affords us the knowledge that we need about ancient idioms in order to understand what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. In an account where Gilgamesh is described as having persuaded a hunter to have a prostitute seduce the giant Enkidu into having a sexual relationship. Hoping that it would weaken him, and Gilgamesh was also a giant, and Enkidu was there to be competition for him. Hoping that the sexual relationship would weaken Enkidu, we read, Gilgamesh talking to the hunter, Go, my hunter, take with thee a harlot lass, a whore. When he, meaning Enkidu, when he waters the beasts at the watering place, she shall pull off her clothing, laying bare her ripeness. As soon as he sees her, he will draw near to her. Reject him will his beasts that grew up on his step. The step meaning the grasslands of Mesopotamia. The wild beasts had gathered to Enkidu, and they were Enkidu's companions, and evidently symbolized his power. So we see the body of a woman described in language used of the fruit of a tree, to which we may compare Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. The hunter did as Gilgamesh had instructed him. And a little later in the epic we read, The lass freed her breasts, bared her bosom, and he, meaning Enkidu, and he possessed her ripeness. She was not bashful, of course not, she was a whore, she had no shame. She was not bashful, as she welcomed his ardor. She laid aside her cloth, and he rested upon her she treated him the savage and kidu being depicted as a savage man who lived on a step with the beasts she treated him the savage to a woman's task as his love was drawn unto her for 6 days and 7 nights and kidu comes forth mating with the lass after he had his fill of her charms, he set his face toward his wild beasts. On seeing him, and Kidu, the gazelles ran off. The wild beasts of the steppe drew away from his body. Startled was Enkidu, as his body became taut. His knees were motionless, for his wild beasts had gone. And Kidu had to slacken his pace. It was not as before, but now he had wisdom, broader understanding. Returning, he sits at the feet of the harlot. He looks up at the face of the harlot, his ears attentive. As the harlot speaks, the harlot says to him, to Enkidu, Thou art wise, Enkidu art become like a god. Why with the wild creatures dost thou roam over the steppe? So where Enkidu was said to have first experienced a sexual relationship, it is said that now he had wisdom, broader understanding, and with that new wisdom that he had become like a god. To this we may compare the words of the serpent to Eve, found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. For this same reason, in Wisdom chapter 2, Solomon had written that nevertheless... Through envy of the devil, death came into the world, and not through the envy of some fruit, some literal fruit on a tree. In the Mesopotamian legends, the father of Gilgamesh was said to be an earthly king, whose name was Lugalbanda. And his mother was a supposed goddess named Ninsun or Ninsuna. So, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it is boasted that the hero is two thirds god. Don't ask me how they arrived at that. I'm not making excuses for ancient Sumerian mathematics. Perhaps Lugobando is part goddess or part god. Both Lugalbanda and Gilgamesh are listed in the inscriptions of the Sumerian kings as rulers of Iraq. As for Enkidu, who was created to counter the arrogance of Gilgamesh, for which reason Gilgamesh was warned and had him seduced, Enkidu was said to have been made or created out of clay by Aruru, another so-called goddess. These fabulous stories actually complement the accounts in Scripture as they come from the perspective of satanic pagan wickedness rather than the godly perspective which the Scripture represents. So Enkidu and Gilgamesh are basically products of what we read in Genesis chapter 6. The Epic of Gilgamesh was certainly extant in the time of Moses, as it was originally a Sumerian Epic. It is known through archaeology to have predated the time of Moses, actually to have predated the time of Abraham, since it dates to the middle of the third millennium BC, where Abraham is actually at the end of the third millennium. And it was also found in Akkadian inscriptions which belong to the Assyrians. We know the epic from the Akkadian inscriptions, but there are surviving fragments of the Sumerian. Sumer was in the same land as Babylonia, which had replaced it. So Gilgamesh is sometimes considered a Babylonian epic. Moses, having been educated as a prince in Egypt, must have been familiar with this epic. And the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls were also familiar with it, since Gilgamesh, the king of Iraq, or Erek in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, is mentioned as one of the giants in those scrolls. Two references to Gilgamesh are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls known as 4Q530 and 4Q531, meaning only that they were in the... Cave at Qumran, they were discovered in the cave at Qumran known as Cave 4, and I think there were a total of 11 caves. So when you see 1Q, 2Q, 3Q, 4Q, that's the first cave, Cave 1, Cave 2, Cave 3, Cave 4, and these are apparently the 530th and 531st scrolls, or fragments of scrolls, I should say, because they're only little fragments that were found and cataloged from the fourth cave. And these particular fragments are from the Book of Giants that is considered to be a part of the ancient Enoch literature, much of which was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. While the name of Gilgamesh was not preserved in the more recent Book of Enoch from the Ethiopic version, preserved in the Ethiopic language. Here we are going to cite R.H. Charles's translation of 1 Enoch in reference to the same aspect of John's words that the devil sins from the beginning, and also that the devil is the author of sin. We do not entirely trust the Ethiopic version of Enoch, and would not esteem it as canon. It contains interpolations, and even entire chapters and books which were not part of Enoch originally and which are often in conflict with our established scriptures. Some of those interpolations are rather ridiculous. But these passages from the Book of Giants, or at least passages which are very similar to these, were preserved in the Enoch literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for which we have a much higher regard. However, They are very fragmentary, and therefore we will read from Charles here, although I am persuaded that there are interpolations even in the text of these chapters of the Ethiopic Enoch, which we are about to read. Where first Enoch chapter 6 begins, it is describing events which led up to the great flood of Noah, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 6. So it also helps us to understand better what the ancients thought of those events, which were only described in a very concise manner by Noah. I'm sorry, by Moses. <laughs> Chapter Six: First Enoch, the Ethiopic Enoch, and it does have some interpolations, but it is very close, especially in meaning, to the fragments of the Book of Giants found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The fragments of the Book of Giants found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're simply not amenable to reading in a narrative, so I chose to follow 1 Enoch. But the meaning is certainly there. And in fact, it's certainly stronger in the fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It would be fascinating to have those, because the fragments of Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls are what I believe that Jude was referring to when he quoted Enoch in his epistle. And Peter and Paul also paraphrased things from Enoch, of which I have no doubt. So, chapter 6 from 1 Enoch, according to Charles, and the version we got through the Ethiopians. The early Ethiopian church, let me say, was absolutely white. And when you look at all the Ethiopian church art that predates the 6th century, and there is much of it surviving, all of their art depicted white men and white women and white apostles and a white Jesus and white saints. The Ethiopian church art from the Jesuit period, which began in the 16th century, depicted nothing but Negroes, but not the early church art. And that also reveals a transformation of what happened in Ethiopia, that the original Ethiopian Christians must have been white, and history tells us that they were most likely white, or at least mostly white, if some of them may have been mixed, which is possible and and actually plausible, but that the later Ethiopians were completely Negroes. 1 Enoch chapter 6, now that I've had my full of digressions. And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them, speaking of the children of Adam, beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And Samyaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations. Not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all two hundred, who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they call it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And that word Hermon comes from a... Hebrew word at least in part which means to swear or take an oath. And these are the names of their leaders. Samla Samlazaz Samlazaz. I'm sorry, some of these names are going to be rough. Samlazaz, their leader. Arakelba, Ramiel, Kokablel, Tamlel, Ramlel, Danel, Ezekiel. Barakial, Asael, Amaros, Batterel, Ananel, Zakiel, Samsapiel, Satarel, Turel. They all had that L. They actually sound like a wow. I won't even say it, I'm sorry. Turel, Yamiel, Sariel. These are their chiefs of tens. I was going to say it sounds like the attendees at a lodge of the Moorish science temple is what it sounds like. But I don't think the fallen angels were niggers, so I apologize for that. So one Enoch mentions these fallen angels. That's chapter six in its entirety. One Enoch mentions these fallen angels by name. Yet, we cannot presume that this is the sum total of all the Nephilim, or all the angels which had fallen. Furthermore, where it describes these angels as the sons of heaven, we would assert that where the manuscripts of the Masoretic text, and therefore most modern Bible versions, have sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, in verses 2 and 4, We should amend that to sons of heaven. Adam was the son of God. It's the daughters of Adam who are daughters of God. Certain manuscripts of the Septuagint, such as the Codex Alexandrinus, and others, which are attested to in origins Hexapla have angels in those same places, and not sons of God. It's the angels who went into the daughters of men. It's the daughters of men and the men themselves who are the sons of God. Continuing with 1 Enoch, chapter 7, these chapters are short, there's four of them. And all the others, together with them, took unto themselves wives. And each chose for himself one. And they began to go in unto them, and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms, and enchantments, and the cutting of roots, and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants, whose height was three thousand ells. Now, that is what I definitely believe is one of the Interpolations in one Enoch. It's not found in the versions that survived in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish. And to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. The fragments of the Book of Giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls do not contain references to the biblical patriarch Jared or to Mount Hermon in Lebanon. Mount Hermon is actually near Lebanon, or to the fantastic size of the giants, or Nephilim, all of which things seem to be interpolations. But the general introduction of sin is ascribed to them, and miscegenation of both men and animals which in the Dead Sea Scrolls version is far more extensive than what is described here as mere sin against men, beasts, birds, and reptiles. Nevertheless, we will continue with our citation. Chapter 8. And Azazel, that's a name we'll discuss at length, at some length. And his taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids. Note that this is taught to men and not to women in chapter seven, but that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> and all kinds of costly stones, and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. Semyazet taught enchantments and root cuttings. Armaris, the resolving of enchantments. Barakial, taught astrology. Kokabel, Kokabel, wow. The constellations. Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds. Arakiel, the signs of the earth. Shamsiel, the signs of the sun. And Sariel, the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to heaven. As it is described in Genesis chapter 4, the descendants of Cain already had skill in metalworking and were teachers of the craft. Where we read, and perhaps this citation is a little too long, and Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and dwelt in a land of Nod, which is wandering. That's what Nod means. On the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife. And she conceived, and bare Enoch, not the Enoch of the book of Enoch, the other Enoch. And he built a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Erod, and Erod begot Mehujael, and Mehujael begot Methusael, and Methusael begot Lamech, not Noah's father, a different Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. And Adah bare Jabal. And he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. <coughs> and his brother's name was Jubal. And he was the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. Now to have a harp and an organ, you have to understand metallurgy, right? you have to have strings and pipes and things like that. And Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naema. So here we would assert that Cain was indeed associated. With the descendants of the Nephilim, and not with the descendants of Adam, who had only acquired these things some time later, ostensibly from the Nephilim, who are credited with being the authors of sin. Continuing with First Enoch for one more chapter. And then Michael. Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel looked down from heaven and saw much blood being shed upon the earth and all lawlessness being wrought upon the earth. And they said to one another, The earth made without inhabitant cries the voice of their cryings up to the gates of heaven. And now to you, the holy ones of heaven, the souls of men make their suit, saying, Bring our cause before the Most High. And they said to the Lord of the ages, Lord of lords, God of gods, king of kings, and God of the ages, the throne of thy glory stands unto all the generations of the ages, and thy name holy and glorious, blessed unto all the ages. Thou hast made all things, and power over all things that hast thou, and all things are naked and open in thy sight. And thou seest all things, and nothing can hide itself from thee. Thou seest what Azazel had done, who taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets which were preserved in heaven, which men were striving to learn. And Semyaza, to whom thou hast given authority to bear rule over his associates, and they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth and have slept with the women, and have defiled themselves, defiled themselves and revealed to them all kinds of sins. And the women have borne giants, and the whole earth has thereby been filled with blood and unrighteousness. And now behold, the souls of those who have died are crying and making their suit to the gates of heaven, and their lamentations have ascended, and cannot cease because of the lawless deeds which are wrought on the earth. And thou knowest all things before they come to pass, and thou seest these things, and thou dost suffer them, and thou dost not say to us what we are to do to them in regard to these. Where we read in that passage, the souls of men make their suit, saying, Bring our cause before the Most High. This seems to be a reference to what is meant in the last verse of Genesis chapter 4, where the children of Adam are first mentioned, and to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. And then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Ostensibly, in my opinion, men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Yahweh. At the time when the troubles described in the opening chapters of Genesis chapter 6 had originally begun. They needed to call upon the name of Yahweh. They were in deep shit. They had these fallen angels upon them, causing them all this trouble. But as for the cries of the souls of the dead, we read in a slightly different context in Revelation chapter six, that the dead certainly can pray where it says in verse nine, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony, which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true. Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth, while most of these names of these fallen angels do not appear in scripture, the name of azazel does, however, it is translated as scapegoat wherever it is found in Leviticus chapter sixteen. Perhaps it bears a meaning similar to scapegoat. But perhaps that is also why this particular angel is called Azazel in the first place. Throughout scripture, Hebrew names were titles that had purposely conveyed particular meanings. The word for scapegoat only appears four times in three verses of that chapter. So we will read it in this manner. Not in the matter that the King James has it. And Aaron, the high priest of Israel. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats. One lot for Yahweh. And the other lot for a Zazel. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which Yahweh's lot fell. And offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to Azazel, in the Hebrew, I would say the lot fell for Azazel, shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make an atonement with him and let him go for Azazel into the wilderness. Then a little further on in the chapter in verse 26 and he that let go the goat for his assel shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. Now bearing this reading of Azazel from Leviticus chapter 16 in mind we should now read from part of the very next chapter of 1 Enoch, chapter 10, which is the very next chapter of the Book of Giants. And again, the Lord said to Raphael, bind his hand and foot, and cast him into the darkness, and make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and cast him therein. And place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness. And let him abide there for ever. and cover his face that he may not see light. And on the day of the great judgment he shall be cast into the fire, and heal the earth which the angels have corrupted, and proclaim the healing of the earth, that they may heal the plague. And that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and have taught their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. These Nephilim, whatever we want to think of those passages in the book of Enoch and I really do believe that they are interpolated and corrupted in the Ethiopic version. But, there are very similar passages which explain all these same sins in the Dead Sea Scrolls version of Enoch. These Nephilim, or fallen angels, did not necessarily float down from heaven to seduce the daughters of men and to commit all of these other sins. As we read in Revelation chapter 12, they were already cast down from heaven. And once they were cast down, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Their leader having been described as that old serpent, they must have been cast down even before Adam was created as the serpent and the entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he represented, were already in the midst of the garden. I also don't believe that heaven is the same as what we might call space or outer space, that heaven may have been simply a state on earth. For this, in order to further explain this, outside of the garden we see the land of Nod. And Nod, which in Hebrew means wandering, is also an allegory for sin. So Cain, being of the nature of the devil, went to the land of sin and built a city. And his children already had the skills attributed to the Nephilim, where they are first mentioned in Genesis chapter 4. Therefore, in Genesis chapters 3, 4, and 6, we see how the devil sowed the tares among the wheat. And we will repeat ourselves again when we discuss the rest of this third chapter of John's epistle, as John teaches us how to separate the wheat. But for now, to complete verse 8, since it is the devil who is the author of sin and had sinned from the beginning, for this the son of Yahweh has been made manifest in order that he would do away with the works of the false accuser. So we read in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. I'm sorry, my voice is cracking. I don't know why I didn't talk much today. I typed all day. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations neither shall they learn war any more. Ostensibly, those many nations are the descendants of the children of Israel. As it goes on to say in the very next verse, O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. There is a similar messianic prophecy in Micah chapter 4 from verse 3. And he shall judge many people, judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Anymore. But the works of the devil, are much greater than merely the introduction of war and the implements of war into a Adamic society again in wisdom chapter Two in the wisdom of Solomon, we read for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity, nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. The seduction of Adam and Eve, and the resulting introduction of death into the world, being the foremost of the works of the devil, if Christ is to do away with them, then once again the Adamic man must be restored to immortality, to the purpose for which he was originally created. Thus we read a promise of that restoration in Genesis chapter 3. Therefore Yahweh God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way. Of the tree of life. The cherubims, next seen atop the Ark of the Covenant, represent the keeping of the law in the kingdom period, which helped keep the way to the tree of life. Yahshua Christ being the true vine, that tree represents him and his people who are branches on that vine. Those descendants of Adam who had clung to their own race, rather than eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, kept the commandments and they will have life in Christ. Christ being the tree of life, the true vine, he foresaw Adam's sin and planned the manner in which Adam would attain restoration from the very beginning. So Solomon in Ecclesiastes and Paul in Romans had attested that Yahweh God purposely subjected man to vanity, ostensibly so that he may learn from the results of sin and rebellion. So Paul of Tarsus had written in Romans chapter 5, where we shall paraphrase our own translation, but it is certainly accurate, For this reason, just as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the society, and by that sin, death, and in that manner, death has passed through all men, on account of all of sin. For until the law, sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future. But should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. Indeed, if in the transgression of one, many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh, and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. And not then by one having sinned is the gift. Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one, which is Christ, is for condemnation, but the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. For if in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, Much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice they are receiving in the life where they reign through that one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, the transgression of Adam, in this manner, then through one decision of judgment, the decision that Yahweh die on behalf of his people, is for a judgment of life. Therefore, even as though through the disobedience of one man, the many, all of Adam, were set down as wrongdoers or as sinners. In this manner, then through the obedience of one man, meaning Christ, the many will be established as righteous. The many are all men, meaning all of the descendants of Adam. As Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There are no exceptions. Yet even this does not encompass all of the works of the devil. In Revelation chapter 20, there is an end of days prophecy which informs us that the devil shall gather all nations against the camp of the saints, which are the children of God turned to Christ. This is a manifestation of an earlier prophecy in Revelation chapter 12, where we read that the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But in turn, this is also... A manifestation of the curse of the serpent, which we see in Genesis chapter 3, where Yahweh God tells the serpent, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So we see why the devil acts as he does against the seed of the woman, as it is described in the Revelation. Yahweh God had taken credit in Genesis for the creation of one race. The Adamic race of these only the nations of the children of Israel have survived into the Christian era. Although they may have remnants of the other Adamic nations among them. As Abraham was promised that his seed would inherit the earth and it did for the most part even by the time of Christ. The other Adamic nation shall certainly be in the resurrection, as Christ and his apostles attested in various ways. But it was not their lot to be preserved on earth throughout history, a promise which was made only to the children of Israel. So of all other nations, in Obadiah it says, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon mine own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen, or all of the non-Israel nations, drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swap swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. These are all the nations except for Yahweh's holy mountain, my holy mountain being a reference to the children of Israel. These can only be the same nations which Satan gathers against the camp of the saints In Revelation chapter 20, these can only be the flood which the serpent spews from its mouth in pursuit of the woman in Revelation chapter 12. Throughout prophecy, it is said in diverse places that the children of Israel were going to be scattered to the ends of the earth. Deuteronomy thirty three seventeen, Isaiah 43, 6, and scattered among all nations. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 3, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 14. So again, in Jeremiah chapter 30, we read, where Yahweh addressed the children of Israel and said, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee, but will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. This is repeated with nearly identical words in Jeremiah chapter 46. So in agreement with Obadiah and Jeremiah, We read in the words of Christ, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, in Matthew chapter 25, that he will gather all nations. And of all nations, there are only two sorts of people, sheep and goats, which are separated on sight as a shepherd would separate them. A shepherd wouldn't ask a sheep, were you a goat today? Or a goat? Were you a sheep today? Did you sin today so that you could be stay a goat? Or were you good so that you could be a sheep? That's not how a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. Then, in their judgment, the sheep are judged for whatever good things they may have done to the sheep. And the goats are condemned for whatever good things they may have failed to do for the sheep, not for the goats, for the sheep, one of the least of these little ones. All sheep go to the right side and are given entrance to the kingdom of heaven. But all goats go to the left side and are cast into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Ostensibly, since Yahweh created only the Adamic race, and since he preserved only the children of Israel, the sheep of his pasture, Then all other existing races and nations are goats, and their origin must have been with the fallen angels, as branches on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So their destiny in the fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, is fitting of their origin, as Yahweh God took no credit for having created them they must be plants which my heavenly Father has not planted that shall be rooted up, the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 15. When all of these things are accomplished, as they are prophesied throughout the Bible, then will Christ have done away with the works of the devil The wheat are the children of God, and the tares are indeed the children of the devil, while all those who are not wheat are tares. Just as there are only sheep and goats out of all the nations, the tares cannot help but to offend, because their very presence among the sheep is an offense against God, is a sin against God, as he never took credit for having created them, and therefore they must be bastards and not sons. Yahweh willing, we shall return soon to discuss John's instructions for separating the wheat, which is done by the gospel of Christ. That will probably happen in a pre-recorded program on July 9th. If my current travel plans succeed, which I pray that they will, as we hope to have an open forum program next Friday, July 2nd, I pray that y'all participate. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.